Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello everyone, Lane Nordland here. It's time for the Cattleman's Call podcast and today's program is brought to you by Corteva AgriScience. And the topic at hand will be the Environmental Stewardship Award. In fact, we have the winner of the 2020 ESAP Award, my friend from Kim, Colorado, Mr. Steve Wooten. Again, Corteva is not only a proud sponsor of this episode, but of the Environmental Stewardship Award as well. So at this time, we are going to rewind just a bit to the 2021 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show, where we have a conversation with the 2020 ESAP winner, Steve Wooten. Again, a big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Corteva. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to this conversation of the Cattleman's Call podcast. This is being recorded during the 2021 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA trade show from the Cattleman's Connection booth, sponsored by Micro Technologies. And, of course, during this year's event, as we have done in the past, we have recognized the hardworking cattlemen and women that have prioritized environmental stewardship on their operations, like so many operations across the nation do. But during this year's event, we had the environmental stewardship finalists from across the nation take the stage, and we are sitting with the 2020 ESAP winner, Steve Wooten joins us here this morning. Steve, congratulations on this year's uh, big win for you and your family and community in the state of Colorado. Lane, thank you very much. I think we're still trying to kind of wrap our head around just what happened last night. What a great, great group of finalists from the seven regions and every one of them an exemplary operation. And we're so honored and so blessed by the Lord that we were picked to be the national environmental stewardship award winner and and represent the industry and and go forth and and really try to use it to make a difference and as we look at the ranch that you and your family are are on multi-generation environmental stewardship has been around on most ranches and that comes in just taking care of the natural resources making sure it's profitable and put together for that next generation so let's just talk about your ranch in Colorado and just the history behind it as well. Our ranch in Colorado has a, a unique history. It, it was formed in the homestead era of 1860s and then transferred to one other ownership in the early 1900s. Then my great-great-grandfather who immigrated from Ireland purchased it from that family in 1929. And since then, our families have been managing the we're getting close to being a centennial operation. Um, in terms of stewardship, that was a lesson that was imparted on me from the time I started working for the family at 17. And before we went to college, it was all about the resource. Yeah, there was interest paid to the cattle, and cattle are always an important part of it. But the resource was made evident that that's what supports us. And we've just tried to carry that forward now to join I and then pass it on to our son and daughter, our daughter-in-law and son, son and daughter, <laughs> son-in-law and daughter, and then ultimately our grandchildren. So of course, yourself and Joy been on that operation and near Kim, Colorado. What, what does it mean as we look at having that next generation, your daughter and son-in-law and their children as well? Really, that's a top priority for you and your wife, making sure that they have a place to come back to, because really, they're the next uh, 
stewards of this operation? That is most important in our operation is the succession to the next generation. We were blessed that my mom and, and my uncle passed that on to us, and the legacy is you do it again. You make sure it goes forward. We don't always know what the next generation wants to do. What we can do from our point is set it up and make it possible for them, and then if they want to take the reins, it's there for their doing. To that degree, Lane, we've already made a lot of that work done. Joy and I are now moved back into a mentor uh, support role. Aaron and Brady take full responsibility of the cow herd management, the, the infrastructure management of the ranch, and and work with their children. We still all work together on a daily basis, but we've made that business change already happen so that they are secure knowing that it's theirs, you're going to make the major decisions, and we get to live comfortable instead of have all that stress. <laughs> But there must come some challenges with that as well. Do you find yourself having to say, hey, we're in this mentorship role. They're starting to take over. Do, do you find yourself someday say, saying, hey, this is, this is turning into their operation. I need, need to step back from, from what I'm thinking or saying right now. D does that happen? Yeah, you always want to make sure that you're not stepping back over and micromanaging. Uh, I like to use the term that if you raised them, you had 20 plus years to do all that preparatory work and encourage them and then they followed you during that level if you didn't do a good enough job to step back and give them the reins to succeed and take the business further than we did then you need to rethink what you taught them so we are so confident in them that very seldom do we have to go step back let let this play out however it needs to because some lessons in life take a little bit of hard knocks to yeah. get yep <laughs> But let's look at the actual operation itself, the, the cattle you run, the actual stewardship and management on your pasture and, and hay ground or, or, or just the day-to-day -day operations. Let's actually talk about the, the, the operation and the cattle. So Beatty Canyon Ranch is a all-native grass. We have no farmland or anything. Um, we do bring in some supplemental feeds for first calf heifers. The cow herd rotates, and it's a red Angus-based cow herd. It rotates throughout the ranch. There's 36 major pastures with smaller holding lots incorporated into it. And during the course of the year, we are moving through those pastures, and at the same time, we're trying to leave some pastures completely ungrazed. And that's our drought mitigation or our pasture recovery plan. Our goal is the majority of the ranch at any given point during the growing season has a minimal number of cattle on it. So our, our moving herds are larger and moving more frequent, but that allows us to have maximum rest and recovery in our pastures. That is what gives us that resilience so that drought doesn't trigger critical management decisions in a six-month window. We want it to be a 12- or 18-month window that we have to look at management decisions. So how did you get on to this management plan? Who, who were the partners and what were the resources education-wise that uh, uh, helped you get to this point? That's a, that's a neat story, Lane. I graduated from CSU in 1979, and I was in my range management class that fall. And they brought a gentleman from South Africa that had come to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and his name was Alan Savory. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about this process of utilizing pastures and moving herds and utilizing hooves and all these, all these really out-of-the-box things for improving the overall condition of the, of the resources. 
And we came home and started work, and I told my uncle about this gentleman I heard speak, and he said, yeah, we're going to have a week-long course with the Society of Holistic Resource Management this spring, and you are already enrolled. And that became the tenor for an ongoing, and it still goes to this day, with my uncle, a continuous learning philosophy. So we had two courses with that group. We eventually started looking at others. So Dave Pratt with a uh, Ranching for Profit and then Dr. Tim Steffens out of Texas A&M. We have utilized those resources to help keep tweaking our grazing management plan. It's never a finished product. It's always evolving. You're always looking at it as how can we do better or what, what techniques are we not using well. So fast forward today, we're having conversations, Brady and I are, with individuals that are in the virtual fence world. How can we eliminate the $10,000 a mile it takes to put in hard fence? And is this technology something that we can incorporate at a lower cost Mm -hmm. and achieve more efficiency in grazing? And when we look at taking the time Look, going to these educational sessions, working with these experts, maybe on the state, federal, or uh, university level, and look at the cost per head when we're looking at to maybe reducing the cost of additional feed or supplement. Uh, can you set up how important that is in the financial aspect of the operation and financial sustainability? We took a really brave step. It took us a long time because Dave Pratt talked about it, Tim Stephens talked about it, about low-cost, high-efficiency operations. And, and I have folks that I follow in the, in the journalism world that are advocates of that as well. But due to the drought of 2001 to 2004, we had an opportunity to make some decisions as we brought our cow herd back to the ranch and redevelop that cow herd. So we decided we're just going to eliminate as much of the overhead feeding, not supplementing, but feeding, mm-hmm. and take our operation to a, to a low-cost operation. That meant we had to get better at providing all the native forage that those cows are going to need. No more bales coming in, no more trucks bringing things in. We were going to have to become even better about making sure that we met their needs on a daily basis right there on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so by reducing pelleted feed costs by 60%, 75 plus percent reduction in total amount of hay that's brought in on the ranch. And then we went through an adjustment period with that cow herd. And there was some culling that took place because we found out we had a lot of welfare cows on the ranch that were dependent on all that additional feeding. Today, I think we've got to a point where we have a very real low cost cow herd, but it's something we monitor on an, on an annual basis. So shoot side, body condition score, mm-hmm. shoot side, an analysis of the structure of the female, and also an analysis of the production of the calf that she raised. And so they, they go through a critical analysis as to whether they stay with us or they go down the road. And when we look at, when you mentioned bringing hay in or bringing some of those invasives in as well, what does what your weed management plan look like out in those pastures and in the hills and uh, working with, uh, with different partners to increase that, uh, that forage and uh, try to get rid of those invaders? In southeast Colorado, we have really two major invaders. There are the lesser, like the thistle and that, that are easily spot sprayed, but the two major ones that we've worked on and that are similar to the other producers in our area in the riparian zones is tamarisk. And we worked with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners, NRCS, Colorado State Forestry, 
the Nature Conservancy. Uh, we developed a pilot or participated in a pilot that was developed with TNC and the local soil conservation district to first try to eradicate tamarisk in one basin. From that point, I saw the success and I said, we're going to do this in the purgatory. So that's where we brought in U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners. And for seven years, we treated the purgatory until we have completely addressed the, the tamarisk within the purgatory. The other one is juniper. Mm-hmm. With, with more than 100 years of fire suppression, juniper has really encroached into your deep soils where your better grasses are. It has a place in the environment mm-hmm. on, on shallow soils, on slopes for holding capacity, but not out in those deep soils that should actually be grassland savannas. Yep. So we try to treat that on an annual basis from 200 to 500 acres a year. We will push trees over and then come back during the winter when we've got snow on the ground and burn those slash piles. Yep. We would love to do more with fire as a management tool, but there's critical elements of fire. The key period to try to burn juniper is also your most dangerous fuel yep. load and, and low humidities. So that's a small, like 40 acres a year, if we can get the permit to do that. I, I think through more success and more trial and error, we'll see more willingness of, of our sheriff's department and fire departments to let us work in a bigger scale. And at this moment, we would just like to pause and once again thank the sponsor of today's podcast, our friends at Corteva AgriScience. They have multiple products and solutions that help producers out in the countryside. But just a reminder, make sure and look into their range and pasture solutions. They have effective and sustainable pasture and rangeland management tools that helps your pasture and rangeland reach its grass production potential. Again, visit Corteva AgriScience online to learn more about their range and pasture solutions or to contact a local Corteva representative near you. Again, thank you to Corteva for sponsoring this podcast and the Environmental Stewardship Award. Back to our conversation with ESAP winner, Steve Wooten. Well, and it's so tough to talk about fire as a management tool when we see our national forests that are mismanaged and not taken care of and the the catastrophic fires we are seeing across the West right now. And of course, drought plays a role in that. We, We know that there's several factors, but management is key. But one of my favorite courses I took at Montana State University was Dr. Clayton Marlowe's wildfire management classes, looking at health of our forests and grazing within that as well. He let me take that class. That was for like master's level students. He, he knew my mom through the conservation <laughs> district world. So he, he kind of, oh, you can take this class. It was oh, way good. over my head. But when you're talking with, with consumers and those that are interested in what you're doing out on the, on the landscape, how do you convey to them that actually fire is a healthy management tool? I think when you're explaining to a consumer what fire does in, in a natural resource situation, you got to first help them understand it's a rejuvenator. It, its action may look catastrophic. But then when you come back and, and if you were able to measure the amount of nutrient that just got dropped on the surface of the soil and then you bring cattle back in and their hooves begin to press that product, that nutrient back into the soil, you're actually enriching the soil. And visually, you'll see that within a year or two as what you used, if you had before and after pictures, it's amazing the amount of grass production and forbs and browses that come post-fire because you just fertilized it in the most natural way. And wildlife benefit from that. They are in there 
post-fire. We have a lot of choya cactus in our region. We have a lot of four-winged saltbrush and other large browses like that. And if a fire goes through there, the wildlife is in there right afterwards because now everything that's sweet and good has just been refreshed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love to be in there. Well, let's uh, stay on that wildlife topic because, as you mentioned, wildlife love that fresh new growth. And utilizing livestock in these uh, grazing rotations helps manage that, uh, uh, getting away from the fire conversation with that as well. That's beneficial to wildlife as well, which a lot of consumers uh, may, may not know that. It is, and it is a part of our plan uh, because we also have a hunting component within our business. So as those cattle are moving, we're also timing it, number one, to be very cautious of certain nesting periods mm-hmm. and where that would be in the lower riparian zones. We like to have some rest period there so that the nesting birds aren't disturbed by our cattle. Then the other aspect of it is we want to try to graze in a mosaic-type pattern so that elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep have an opportunity to follow, and they do follow the cow herd. They'll be about 20, 30 days behind, and you'll go back in a grazed pasture, and you'll find small herds of these large herbivores in there grazing on that new regrowth behind them. Um, so it's a symbiotic relationship between our profitability on cattle and our care for wildlife. So looking back, when you were out of college and and going to these grazing management and and, uh, education courses to improve your operation, to improve your landscape, to improve your cattle herd, do you ever think, God, if if, if I would not have went to that, where would our operation be at? Uh, That's a blessing I received from my grandmother and my uncle, that that mentorship was there. Um, But yes, sometimes I... I think about what if we hadn't gained that network of, of information and, and mentorships, both private and within the family, how would we have figured this out by ourselves? How would we have, in the dark, struggled our way through it? And, and I think that's the thing that we try to do when we host seminars and visits to Beatty Canyon Ranch, that we're trying to share that out. and, and we're more than willing to make sure that you know about Dallas Mount and Tim Steffens and, and the folks up at the Soil Conservation District. We want you to follow the same folks. There's no secrets here. If it's helping us, we'd like to see if it could help you. Now, uh, as we look at the actual environmental stewardship program, it's such a great tool to help reach out and tell ranchers' story every single year. And there's so many ranchers out there that should be nominated, that should participate in this program, but maybe they're just a little hesitant because sometimes we're just kind of private. We don't want to tell that story or, you know, maybe you think, well, I'm just doing what we've done for the last 30 years. I learned about it in college. What, uh, what pushed you to become more active? What, was it your family? Was it uh, other past ESAP recipients? What, what, uh, how did you get involved with the environmental stewardship promotion into this? I'd say it was several of those factors. It, it was getting involved in the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, beginning to work with committees and others in, in NCBA, and then becoming aware of the Environmental Stewardship Award. But it was, it was a lot the encouragement of staff at Colorado Cattlemen's, of the roundtable, uh, folks on the roundtable that, that said, you guys ought to try this. You ought to make a run at this. It, it's highly competitive. It's very difficult but you should make a run at it. And I will be brutally honest with you. My first iteration, when I tried to 
think about sending that, I threw it in the trash. <laughs> this is not level of, of environmental stewardship. We're going to have to restart this and bring back those old journalism and writing skills that have been dormant <laughs> since college. <laughs> I mean, did I ever write in college? Because some of those first descriptions of how Baby Canyon Ranch functions look pretty premature. <laughs> and uh, that's funny. So, and I should mention, you're also president of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. You just took the helm there at the at the summer meeting that wrapped up in Grand uh, Junction back in June. So, with, with your position as a leader within CCA and a leader within Western Agriculture, what are some of your priorities in, in helping ranchers realize their role in stewardship? I think those priorities are multiple pointed. Um, number one, it's the issues management. I think if there's ways that we can give producers assurances that the organizations like CCA, NCBA, and others are fighting their fight for them. You know as well as I that in Colorado we were faced with a proposition that would have basically been the abolishment of meat animal protein in Colorado. And leadership in Colorado Livestock Association, Colorado Cattlemen's Wool Growers, they did a great job appealing the title and taking it to the Colorado Supreme Court and getting an, a majority ruling that that was right. It was, it was a multiple title. It had to be rescinded. Um, and then on the other side is, on, uh, with my work on sustainability and, and what we're trying to do in terms of addressing climate, I think the further we can help producers get out ahead as we wrestle with the current administration's beautiful America or 30 by 30, we can tell a story, but we need to get everybody participating. We all have individual stories, but collectively, when we start sharing with each other and then sharing to share out into the, into the media world, we have a great story to tell about how good we've been caring for the land for a lot longer than it was popular in the media or popular in this climate issue. And we actually have solutions to climate problems. Well, and something beautiful that happened this past spring, of course, the the big uh, reaction to the governor of Colorado's Meat Out Day proclamation, it it, it garnered scorn, uh, frustration, uh, a lot of of talk, positive and negative on, on social media. But the beautiful thing that came out with Meat Out Day was the collaboration for Meat In Day. And for one day, different agriculture groups came together farmers and ranchers with maybe different political beliefs came together to promote Colorado beef and the important sustainable role they play in land management and producing a nutritious protein. Let's talk about how for one day industries in Colorado, I know Nebraska had a meet-in day, Wyoming, Montana, the industries came together for one day. It it crossed protein lines too yes that was a meat out proclamation it wasn't singled out towards beef it it involved our pork partners it involved our poultry partners and for one day lamb that's right that's right Colorado still has a significant lamb industry in the northwest everybody came together and there was another element of that that was a pleasure to see and that was urban communities bought into it we had walking events down downtown regions where you could stop in a restaurant and you could sample of protein in that restaurant and go to the next one and go to the next one. They, they had these unique uh, um, events all because of a proclamation that said 
we've got to stop eating meat because it's supposedly environmentally friendly. And people said, no, I love my meats. I love to engage in that. I have confidence in that industry to produce a nutritious, viable product. And so it, it was incredible to see. The other thing that occurred was a lot of the meat in events had a um, donation component to it. And several foundations and several nonprofits were the benefit of those donative actions at these meet in events. But we can tie this all back into your story and all the other sustainable ranchers' story in Colorado and across the nation, how this is why it's so important to be telling stories like this and reaching out to consumers, uh, whether that is a face-to-face -face interaction through a brand of beef product or just helping people understand, do an agri-tour on your operation if you're set up to do that to say, we are sustainable. We've been here for multiple generations and uh, it's, uh, it's important to us. Lane, it is, it is important and it is hard to be an advocate, but it's also very easy to be an advocate. There are so many opportunities. We're all on some form of social media. We, we Snapchat, we Facebook, just add a hashtag, beef it's what's for dinner, hashtag beef. Hashtag the environment is better with beef. Just add one component like that so that if someone sees that and clicks on it, they get a little more information. For those of us that want to speak out and feel comfortable in the public venue speaking, we need you. We need you to do that. Engage in schools, engage with the consumer, and share the story. It takes all of us doing what we can to advocate for what we so dearly love to do is raise beef. Now, some of our listeners may be of picked up on uh, the organization, the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. I, I know you're involved in that. And some people are, are, are concerned about that group because of just different uh, groups that maybe they don't agree with are a part of that. In your opinion, why is it important to have different people sitting in the same room talking about uh, sustainable beef? Sustainability and beef, for that matter, cross all, all sectors. And when we stood up at NCBA, the, the Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, one of the things we said, we must be inclusive. We're going to be an open table, and that sometimes puts environmental groups that we don't feel are always in our best interest. But when everybody agrees that in that critical center is where we're going to work, we recognize that some people are critical, have areas outside of that on both ends of the spectrum. But when everybody comes together and says we're going to focus on the sustainability of beef in the center where we all agree and that egos are left out of the room, personal positions are left out of the room, then you begin to move forward and see the kind of success that we're seeing with the U.S. Roundtable. I wish folks would have taken advantage of that. If they had questions about it, if they aren't sure about the U.S. Roundtable, it's an open invitation. It's not closed you're still able to come. We had three new members this, this month alone, and we're this far into our work, but members are wanting to get engaged because they see the positive work that's coming out of it. Now, uh, jumping back to last evening during the Cattle Industry Convention here in Nashville, when your family's ranch and name was announced, what, what was the emotions that, that you and your family that you were surrounded with uh, felt? That was an adrenaline rush like I haven't had in a long time. I, I was not expecting that. I, I really felt like there was other operations that were doing such great work. It, it was a tough competition, and, and I was in shock for a moment there. It took me a little while to get my breath. And then 
our sense of, of humbleness and, and honor that we were chosen for that award amongst some great candidates and in front of our peers and knowing that it was a lot of our peers that made that decision. Um, we're still in that phase that, that pinched me. Did that really happen last night? Is, is that where, where we're at this morning? <laughs> but um, it's hard to put the right words in lane that, that we feel so honored and humbled that the industry bestowed upon us this year's award. Now, uh, I heard your granddaughter made quite, uh, quite the impression, uh, keeping everyone uh, putting smiles on their face during the family photo. Oh, uh, yes. Um, Brian was there and, and did the video that everybody was watching, and, and Adley is four years old, and she got very comfortable with him when he was at the Brian, ranch. Doing, Brian Baxter. Yes, with, yes, yep, Brian yep. Baxter. And uh, got very comfortable with him. Well, when we lined up to take the picture, she recognized him, and so she was making faces at him, pulling her lips apart with her fingers and, and all kinds of stuff. And Brian is waving and trying to tell us that Adley's goofing off. And we just thought Brian was waving, so we're waving back at Brian. <laughs> so we've got some rather unique pictures of our granddaughter in, in memory of that event. So, but speaking of your grandkids, your daughter and her husband. What What is the advice that you have been sharing with them as they continue on and maybe they get recognized for their work in the ranching community in 20, 30 years? And maybe what your grandkids' children will be doing. What I'm kind of getting emotional talking about that, but what what is your goal for them? Continuous learning, Lane. Never quit learning. Never quit thinking outside the box. Um, don't... I, it's hard. It's easy to get in that comfort zone on something that's working and you say, okay, let's just ride this because it doesn't create challenge. It doesn't take risk. But I think we have to keep that going. We have to keep that continuous learning and questioning of ourselves and looking at diversification and other business models that create that evil word, profit. <laughs> but you don't have a ranch, you don't have a family if you don't have profit. We have to recognize that. And that's one of the critical elements as we talk about sustainability and other models, whether it's people, profit, planet, or economy and, and social and economic. It's all in there. It's a part of it that you have to address. And finally, what's a message you have for all of those outstanding sponsors of the Environmental Stewardship Award Program? First of all, just a great big thank you for stepping up and being a part of this incredible award. Um, last night, everything was hosted by Cortiva, and we talked earlier about working with Natural Resource Conservation Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners. I've been blessed to have a real good working relationship with McDonald's through the roundtable, one that I never thought I'd have to have conversations with a retailer and learn about the issues from the retail side. And then, of course, NCBA and the foundation, just an incredible group that are dedicated to seeing exemplary operations awarded. Well, I hope to make it down to your operation sometime. I was at Jim Strickland's place this past April at the Blackbeard's Ranch, a, a former ESAP award-winning uh, ranch as well. And uh, it's always a pleasure from my other professional career to, to be a voice for Colorado agriculture on the radio waves. And, uh, and we'll continue to talk, of course, with your role with the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. But, Steve, anything that you 
or on behalf of your family, your wife, Joy, that you would just like to share with the rest of our audience here on the Cattleman's Call podcast today? So, Lane, I think we'd like to share that we are so honored and, and so grateful that the industry liked what they saw on Beatty Canyon Ranch and bestowed upon us this wonderful award. Well, I tell you what, folks, if you want to learn more about the Beatty Canyon Ranch and the Wooten family and all the other finalists for the 2020 Environmental Stewardship Award program, make sure and visit their website online. You can see some outstanding videos produced by Brian Baxter with Baxter Communications telling their story. Um, it, it might give you some ideas about what you can do on your operation, help tell that story, engage with consumers, and of course, make that landscape that you're ranching on, growing, get grass on more profitable. Steve, thanks for joining us here this morning. Congratulations to you and your family. Thank you so much. Well, friends, that will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Again, this show was recorded during the 2021 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in Nashville, Tennessee. You can hear the music starting up in the background. That's good timing on the wrapping up this show. We are thankful to be broadcasting from the Cattleman's Connection booth, sponsored by Micro Technologies. For the Cattleman's Call podcast, I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.